1: Welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Ore Ogumbi.
0: And I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world.
1: It's no coincidence that so many of the Russian women landing in Argentina are pregnant. The country has birthright citizenship. Our correspondent says authorities would like to stop the influx, but that could have legal consequences.
0: ...and a chat with our new co-host of the show.
1: But first... After nearly three months of protests in Israel... Pressure on Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu appears to be reaching breaking point.
2: We are here for the democracy. Bibi is not here for the democracy. Thank you very much. This prime minister um, is not qualified anymore.
1: This weekend, demonstrators marched on his home and on Israel's parliament, the Knesset. This morning, scenes inside the chamber were chaotic,
3: too. The
1: protests and political infighting center on a package of constitutional reforms that Mr. Netanyahu and his right-wing coalition have been intent on passing. Against them stand much of Israel's armed forces, some of its most productive taxpayers, and the country's most powerful unions not to mention some members of Mr. Netanyahu's own government. This morning, Israel's former Prime Minister, Yair Lapid, added his voice to the mix, warning that the country has never been closer to falling apart. Given how much Mr Netanyahu has staked on these reforms, the same thing might be said of his political career.
3: Israel has seen what was perhaps its biggest, most intense weekend of protests.
1: Anshul Pfeffer is our Israel correspondent.
3: Organisers claim that they brought over half a million people out onto the streets on Saturday night. And last night, on Sunday night, there was another unplanned but equally intense round of protests immediately following the announcement that Benjamin Netanyahu had fired his defense minister Yoav Gallant, and once Netanyahu fired Gallant, all hell broke loose. <laughs> I was at the protest last night in Jerusalem, outside Netanyahu's house, and. I've been in many protests there. I've never seen that many people totally blocking all the roads leading to Netanyahu's house, overwhelming the security. They didn't quite go up to the house, but it really was a protest that hasn't been seen before on the streets of Jerusalem. And there were similar protests happening in other places. In Tel Aviv, the main highways were blocked for hours. And this does seem to have changed something here.
1: And I'm sure. Before we get into that change, take us back a bit. Why are people on the streets?
3: This is coming after 12 weeks of protests in Israel, which began at the very beginning of the year when the new government announced its plans for a radical judicial overhaul, basically taking away the powers of the Supreme Court, both its independence and its powers to intervene in government policy and legislation. And these protests have been happening ever since, but have slowly but surely been reaching a crescendo while the government has continued with its plans. And this week, which is the last week of the winter session of Israel's parliament, the Knesset, was to be the week when one of the central parts of the government plan, a law to basically change the Judicial Appointments Committee, allowing the government to dictate who would be the new uh, judges in the Supreme Court and who would be the president of the Supreme Court, this law was to be brought this week to the Knesset. And this was also the moment when Defense Minister Yavgarant decided to warn Netanyahu first in private and then to warn the Israeli public that this is a clear and present danger to Israel's security because tens of thousands of uh, officers in Israel's reserve units have said that they would not continue to volunteer to serve in an army which they say is serving a dictatorship. The
1: security and security of the
3: So this was basically the trigger for last night, for Sunday night's events, which we're hearing is being reported that Netanyahu is now considering announcing that he's suspending the legislation.
1: And do you think he will suspend the legislation? Can he resist this pressure?
3: It's become almost impossible for Netanyahu to withstand the pressure when not just his now perhaps ex-defense minister the firing has yet to take effect and as we know all the chiefs of israel security services and military have been telling him you're risking Israel's security by going ahead with this legislation so it's very difficult for netanyahu to continue in such a situation however Key elements of his coalition, the far-right parties and the Justice Minister, Yariv Levin, who is a member of Netanyahu's Likud party, some people are saying he's now the most influential member of that party, are still insisting that he continue with the legislation. So Netanyahu is, is basically in a lose-lose situation. Either he... Publicly defies the security establishment who are all saying that this is a threat to Israel's security, or he goes against the wishes of key elements of his coalition. That means he may not have a coalition or a majority going forward. But we're hearing that Netanyahu is now leaning towards suspending legislation.
1: And if he does suspend that legislation, what happens next?
3: Well, Israel is just before what is usually a relatively calm period as the festival of passover which is followed by israel's independence day and the main memorial days in the israeli calendar this is also israel's 75th anniversary so it was supposed to be a special celebration so this has all been overshadowed by the protests in the last 12 weeks and if Netanyahu does back down then we may see some kind of a break or some kind of pause in the protest it very much depends on how serious his promise to suspend the legislation is if indeed the Knesset doesn't go ahead and pass these laws. But at the same time, he'll be facing a lot of pressure from within his coalition. So these will probably be some stormy weeks going ahead, even if Netanyahu does publicly climb down. So
1: what might those stormy weeks look like? Do you think Mr Netanyahu's coalition will
3: hold? The coalition which Netanyahu formed three months ago is only half his Likud party. The other half are a bunch of far-right parties and ultra-religious parties who are very, very much in favour of this judicial overhaul. These are parties who are ideologically opposed to an independent Supreme Court, and they wanted this opportunity, once in a lifetime opportunity to try and totally change the balance of Israeli democracy and dramatically weaken the Supreme Court. And for them to lose this opportunity that they thought they had would be something that they won't take lightly. Now, we haven't yet heard any clear threats of any of the coalition parties to withdraw from the coalition if this happens. But if he does climb down, they'll certainly have other demands and some of them may decide that they're leaving the coalition and that would put Netanyahu in a very precarious position only three months after returning to office.
1: So in light of all these protests, the disruption within the government, the lose-lose situation that you describe, could we be seeing the end of Mr Netanyahu's political career?
3: I think it's premature to call it the end of the Netanyahu era. There isn't currently an alternative coalition. The opposition doesn't have the numbers to form a coalition of their own. I don't see them giving up the ministries that they've just received and all the other trappings of power. But this is the biggest blow Netanyahu has suffered. Netanyahu, who is such a master at public relations and presentation, has rolled out this very ambitious policy of what he calls legal reform, what the protesters are calling a judicial overhaul or judicial revolution. And he's rolled it out in a very, very shambolic way. There was no real attempt to explain to the wider Israeli public what it meant. And um, really the opposition, which was demoralized and split after the election, had an open field in trashing Netanyahu's program. And we've seen this unprecedented level of of protests here as a result he's been totally pressured to back down and in that this really is Netanyahu's, i think biggest failure certainly in domestic politics in a very very long career he's still prime minister but i don't see him getting back from this failure in any way this isn't yet the end of the Netanyahu era but this is very likely the blow which will push us into the twilight perhaps of his very long career
1: hanshul thank you so much for coming on the show
3: Thank you for having me, Ori.
4: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter visit bank of banking for business to learn more what would you like the power to do bank of america na copyright 2024 i found out that i'm pregnant in august and we uh, were not that uh, really uh, sure that we have to leave so pregnant okay fine we can we can have baby in Russia but then uh, the September came and mobilization began and that was a terrible time cause
0: Maria Konovalova is a teacher from St. Petersburg she arrived in Buenos Aires in February.
4: And I didn't know will I see him in the evening cause uh, policemen uh, were catching people in the street and sent uh, and send them away.
0: Yeah. She's one of many Russian women who decided to leave their homeland after finding out they were pregnant. It's
4: really dangerous to, to live there
0: anymore. Ms. Konovalova had a specific destination in mind.
2: Argentina has very permissive immigration laws, which date back to the 19th century, when the goal was to encourage migration from Europe.
0: Ana covers Latin America for The Economist.
2: Lots of foreigners including Russians can enter the country as tourists without a visa and they can stay for 90 days. There's also the added bonus that healthcare is free and perhaps the most important thing is that Argentina has birthright citizenship, which means that any child born on Argentine soil automatically gets citizenship.
0: And so why if mothers are coming and wanting an Argentinian passport for their children, why why there?
2: So an Argentine passport allows visa-free travel to 171 countries, which is a lot more than the Russian passport, which offers visa-free travel to just 118 countries. And not only babies can get passports, having an Argentine child can cut in half the time it takes for parents to get a passport too. So we don't know exactly how many Russian women travel to Argentina to give birth, but the head of argentina's immigration authority says that since last january some 22,000 russians have traveled to argentina and an unusually high number appear to have been pregnant women so for example on a single flight in january from ethiopia which is on route between russia and argentina there were 33 heavily pregnant women on board and it appears that many russian women who are having children in argentina are leaving the country just a few weeks or months after giving birth but Russian pregnancy tourism isn't confined to Argentina.
0: How so? Where, where else do the Russians go?
2: The U.S., for example, also has birthright citizenship. And there have been reports that wealthy people from a lot of different countries, including China and Russia and Nigeria and Latin American countries have traveled to the U.S. to give birth and get their kids an American passport. The late 2010s, for example, There was a surge of Russian women traveling to Miami to give birth. There's a small Russian community there called Little Moscow. But that's not an easy route anymore. So since 2021, almost all Russians who travel to the States have to apply for visas in other countries. So that's made Latin America a bit more attractive. I caution the data are kind of patchy because it's not like people take pregnancy tests at immigration. There's no pregnancy control. But there have been reports that Russians are also going to Brazil, which also has birthright citizenship.
0: But you say it's Argentina that seems to be the real draw here. Why is that, do you think?
2: There's a number of reasons why Argentina seems to be particularly appealing to Russians. One is that when it comes to culture, food and architecture, Buenos Aires in particular feels very European. Then you've got free health care, and most importantly, a cottage industry of firms has popped up that cater to Russian women coming to have babies. And these agencies offer Russians travel packages, including accommodation, translation services, medical visits, often at a cost of thousands of dollars. And some of them exaggerate how easy it is for parents of Argentine babies to get citizenship themselves. And that has started to cause concern among some officials here in Buenos Aires.
0: Well, I would imagine another concern, though, is that there will be a flood of pregnant Russian women just coming and coming and coming.
2: Part of the fear is that the security of the Argentine passport might be undermined. There's this worry that some nefarious people could take advantage of Argentina's openness, like Russian criminals or spies that could get Argentine passports by posing as the husbands of pregnant women or generally just taking advantage of this industry that has sprung up to fast-track citizenship applications. So, for example, in January, two people who are believed to be Russian spies were arrested in Slovenia with fake Argentine passports.
0: And so do you get a sense that the the government is going to, to change the conditions or requirements in any way to tackle any of these concerns?
2: So Argentine authorities now say that Russian women who travel to Argentina to give birth shouldn't really be able to enter as tourists and that they should instead apply for residency. But I spoke to some immigration lawyers who said that's kind of legally murky because it's not like you're not allowed to be a tourist if you're pregnant. But immigration authorities are saying that, you know, if you come solely in order to give birth, that doesn't really count as tourism either. So in February, immigration authorities detained six Russian women who they said entered the country as tourists, but were really there just to give birth. So those women have since been released. But the judiciary is also investigating several of the agencies that assist Russian mothers to see if there's anything dodgy going on. And in February, Argentine immigration authorities said that they started suspending residence permits of Russians who entered the country to give birth but then seem to have left it after like a few weeks or months. So those are some of the steps Argentine authorities have taken. But this is a country that was built on immigration and it's unlikely that loose immigration policies will drastically change anytime soon.
0: Anna, thanks very much for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me, Jason.
0: So, all right, tell me, how's your first day in the host chair?
1: Jason, it's going great. I have big shoes to fill, obviously, but I'm super excited. I'm just looking forward to talking to lots of correspondents, getting involved with more of the stories, being really hands on. I think it's going to be great. I'm really excited.
0: What are you most excited about?
1: I think I'm most excited to get to cover stories that are from all bits of the paper. So I think sometimes even the bits that maybe I don't read as often or that maybe some of our readers are less familiar with, being able to introduce them to those stories. And also, I think to just make some of the conversations a bit more digestible and a little bit lighter. I think it's also great that we have a younger voice on the podcast. No offence, Jason, I'm not calling you old or anything. I just think it's going to sound great.
0: Don't worry, I'm going to try not to be offended. Now, many listeners will have heard you on the show before, but for those who haven't, tell us a bit more about yourself. What have you been up to before now?
1: Before this gig, I was writing for the business section covering healthcare and consumer goods. That was everything from what Google is doing by investing in healthcare to also looking at women's health for the science section, but sometimes also writing about retail, Gen Z consumers, the beauty industry. Basically, if you were buying it, I was probably writing about it.
0: And before all that?
1: Before I joined The Economist, I was writing speeches for the vice president of Nigeria. So I lived in Abuja. And before that, I was in New York writing a book with my best friend. It's called Taking Up Space, The Black Girls Manifesto for Change. And it looks at the experiences of black women and non-binary people at top British institutions and the very specific kind of racism that we faced when we were there.
0: And I hope with the hosting duties not taking over all of your time, you'll still be able to get out and, and report on the stuff that you do best.
1: Yeah, so exactly. I really enjoy taking the podcast out on the road. So for example, even as a correspondent, when I did the story about Gen Z consumers, I took the intelligence to Westfield Shopping Centre in Stratford and went to talk to lots of young shoppers about the kind of things they buy. That's the kind of energy I'm hoping to bring to the show.
0: So why is it you wanted to do this gig?
1: I think for me... One of the main ways I've always interacted with The Economist's content is through the podcast. I think a lot of people who want to access our content on the go, this is what they listen to. If you want a little bit of news every day, this is the thing you listen to. And I just wanted to be a part of that.
0: What's the furthest you've gone, the most effort you've expended, the craziest thing you've done to get the story?
1: Oh, I was writing a piece about sleep tech once, and I had to sleep with a bunch of things in my ears and listening to music that sounded much more like TV static than anything that was supposed to put me to bed. It really messed up with my sleep for weeks, actually, but I did it for the story just so I could tell everyone that actually this stuff doesn't really work.
0: And just for fun, go on, tell me something that we would never otherwise know about you.
1: Hmm. I mean, Jason, I have told you a lot about myself already, but I think you probably don't know that my mum was Miss Nigeria.
0: I most certainly did not. (laughs) Now, Ore, for the first time then, can you take us out of the show? Okay, first of all, let's get the music up. Okay, there we go. Ore, on you go.
1: That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com.
0: And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you really are missing out. But dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
4: Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or